Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and we're back for a conversation with one of the most dominant doubles players in the history of the sport, Gigi Fernandez. You know, I was born understanding doubles for some reason. Like, I was, uh, when I was 12, I made the finals of the Puerto Rico National Championship in the adult division. As far as developing yourself as a person and as a player, you need to lose. Like, if you don't lose, you don't learn. I think when you're number one in the world at something, you don't think that 17 is good. You can't describe the pressure. It's so much pressure trying to win a calendar run time because it's so rare. Before Gigi became known for her doubles mastery on the world's most celebrated courts, she got her start by playing with her family in her native Puerto Rico. Despite the island's comparatively small tennis tradition, Gigi carved out a path to compete globally through personal determination. From convincing coaches to take her on as a student to becoming a collegiate champion, Gigi shares her story of grit and the importance of learning from losses. Partnered with three different fellow Hall of Famers, Gigi's accomplishments include 17 Grand Slam titles and two Olympic gold medals. Now a sought-after coach in both on-court skills and mental toughness, Gigi reveals insight on positive self-talk, what she considers her greatest achievement, and her advice on being a parent to athletes. I leave you now with host Chris Bowers and Gigi Fernandez. Chris, take it away. Gigi Fernandez, what is the attribute that you think makes you a Hall of Famer? That's a tough question, but beyond forehands and backhands and serves and overheads, which we all have, I think it's timing, right? It's, it's the timing of hitting the big shots at the right time, being in the right place at the right time, coming in the right era. You know, right now we have three guys that have dominated the tennis tour like we've never seen before. So all the other players that came around that generation are not going to be Hall of Famers simply because they're the only ones that won all the Grand Slams, so they had bad timing. And just that, you know, makes, if you can hit the shots under pressure, if your timing is good for when, when you have a hot streak, then you'll have a chance to be a Hall of Famer if you have the talent. You make it sound like luck is a big part of it. It's not luck. It's just, well, let me rephrase that. There is luck involved. There is meeting the right people throughout your career as you're coming up. There's a little bit of luck involved in having that person find you that seems or thinks that you have the talent, you know, for them to dedicate their, their time to you. You know, unless... You know, how do, how do champions get found? You know, someone someone saw them and thought, oh, they, they have talent, I'm going to help them. So that's lucky, you know, you be in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, staying healthy is also important. Like, you could have all the talent in the world, and if you can't stay healthy, you're not going to make it. So genetics, you know, it's important. What are the genetics of your parents that they passed on to you? So you, you know, have hand-eye coordination, you're born with that, you can't develop it. So you can't make it better, but you're not going to, um, you know, if you're born not coordinated, you're not going to be a professional tennis player. So that's luck, you know. <laughs> the, the gene pool came and you had hand-eye coordination. So there's a little bit of luck. You say, how are champions found? I mean, it's easier to find champions in countries with a developed infrastructure. How was the tennis infrastructure in Puerto Rico when you were growing up? There was none. <laughs> so it was a miracle, really. Um, so what we had in Puerto Rico was a guy by the name of Luis Ayala, who was a Chilean, who was top 10 in the world. And him and his wife, Maria, uh, came to 
Puerto Rico and made their home there. And they were at the racket club in Isla Verde. And we belonged to the racket club. And my two older brothers played tennis. My mom and my dad played tennis. So I wanted to be like my brothers. And actually, I'll tell you a little personal story, but I just found out recently within the last six months, the reason that I play tennis, and I did not know this, but when I was growing up, um, we had a family accident. It was not tragic, but it was very devastating to our family. And my mother picked up tennis because she needed an outlet for the tragedy that, that we were dealing with. So it was her outlet when I was, uh, I was three or four at the time. So I started playing tennis because we had this family, tragic family accident that took us to the tennis court so we could not think about it. And that's how I became a tennis player. So, And what sort of support did you have? I mean, who helped you other than Luis Ayala? I mean, who was there actually to help you? And, and, and where did you actually hone your strokes? So I had my first lesson when I was seven from Luis after asking for, you know, three years. For every birthday, I wanted to have tennis lessons for my, for my birthday and finally got it at seven. There was another man, his name was um, Juan Rios, and he taught me the, sl- the slice backhand. And there was a gentleman by the name of Welby Van Horn, which who you might recognize. He was uh, Charlie Passerell's coach, and Charlie was already a good player. At No, Charlie was still young, so we, we didn't know that Charlie was going to end up also being in the Hall of Fame. But he would not teach me. He told my mom that I didn't have it, that I had no talent, and that I was too temperamental and that I was never going to make it. So I think part of, I've always had this chip on my shoulder, and I, I think there's no better motivator for a human than to be told you can't do something, at least for me. In my makeup, if somebody says to me, you can't do it, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I had that little chip on my shoulder to kind of show Welby that, that I was good enough. And then other than that, there was a woman by the name of Crisi Gonzalez, and she was a college player. She was about five years older than me, and she played college tennis. And she was really my the main person that I could that gave me competition that I could play against that would beat me once, you know, or, or she would beat me because she's older. So she was a mentor, you know, and she was she helped a lot. Um, so there were people around. There was just not a system in place to develop players, and there was not world class. The only really truly world class instructor that was there was Willie Van Horn, and he didn't want to teach me, so I had to kind of find my own way. But if you're asking every birthday at a very young age to have tennis lessons, that suggests to me a determination. Yeah, and it, but it was because my brothers were playing. You know, my two older brothers were playing, and I wanted to be like my brothers, and I wanted to play. I wanted to be in the court with them, and I wanted to play against them. But I was, you know, stuck on the backboard, hitting against the wall. And when they were on the court, because I was too little. And were you too temperamental? I was, one hundred percent. I had a temper. Yeah, I have. I have this combination of um, passion, immaturity, and perfectionism. And the three, it's combustible, right? Because if if you're a perfectionist and you're passionate and you're temperamental, things aren't going well. You're gonna, you're you're just gonna blow up and immaturity is the key element because when you're mature you understand life in, in a different way and you can you can look back and, and analyze the situation from a mature standpoint as opposed to from an emotional one I've, you know I've obviously always been very emotional and and that's in my genetic makeup you know my grandparents my grandfather in particular had horrible temper so I was just always around that so how do you view today's players who show signs of temper are you very sympathetic towards them or do you take quite a hardline attitude because you had to get over your own temperamental issues so i think there's a line that 
when it's crossed, I, I get upset about it. Like, I think you can be temperamental and, you know, have throw your racket and be upset. I just don't think you, you should disre- disrespect the game. And I think when you disrespect the game, you, if you tank or disrespect the opponent, I don't really take well to disrespect the opponent. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think in general, the culture of tennis is not respecting, perhaps as you're coming up, not respecting your opponent, because if you respect too much, then you can't beat them, right? If you're going on the court facing, you know, Martina Navratilova, in my case, when I was growing up, if I respected her too much and thought too highly of her, then I would never be able to beat her. So this, it's an interesting dynamic. So we've got this little girl with single digits, desperately keen to play, wants to be like her brothers, but dismissed as being too temperamental and the best coach won't coach her. And at the age of 24, you're a US Open women's doubles champion. What was the big point at which you took control of your destiny and actually moved into the slipstream that would make you a champion? Okay, so I'll tell you two stories. The first one, really what changed my life was getting recruited to go to college. Because up to the point, growing up through the juniors in Puerto Rico, I you know, was number one in my age group and two above because there was no competition. But then I would come to the United States because the Puerto Rico Tennis Association was part of the United States Tennis Association. And I would play the summer nationals. And, you know, I did not do well in those. But a coach thought I had talent and offered me a, ta- offered me a scholarship. So when I went to Clemson University, it was the first time in my life that I played tennis every day. And I was 18. And think about that for a minute. I was 18. It's the first time in my life I played tennis every day. So then my improvement was, was pretty rapid. You know, I made the finals in the NCAAs as a freshman. And then I ended up turning pro. And after four years of losing every week, I was ready to quit. Because when you have a good junior career and no, comp- no competition, like when I turned pro, I hadn't lost that much in my life. And then when you turn pro, you lose every single week, twice, singles and doubles. And... Like we said earlier, I was temperamental and then hadn't learned that losing is really a, a great learning experience. And it's really losing. As far as developing yourself as a person and as a player, you need to lose. Like if you don't lose, you don't learn. I didn't know that at this point. So when I got to the 88 US Open, I was going to quit. That was going to be my last Grand Slam. And I had you know, told my agent I'd given it four years and I was homesick and tired of traveling and not happy with my results. So I was going to quit, and he says, okay, well, before you quit, why don't you meet Dr. Jim Lair? And I was like, okay, I'll give it a chance. And, of course, most famous sports psychologist. And he taught me what to do with the 25 seconds between points. And he also gave me some things to work on during my matches that resulted in me winning my first Grand Slam when I was ready to hang it up. Uh, so I think that being recruited and meeting Dr. Jim Lair are the two things that changed my life. I'm sure a lot of people would agree with you that you learn far more from losses than victories. Right. But it, you make it sound like the difference between you walking away and not learning and actually learning was just one tennis psychologist. Yeah, because, you know, tennis is highly mental. You know, if when I ask this question to people, it's 50%, 80%, 90%, whatever number you want to give it. But the fact is that when you in an average ATP tour match that takes two hours and 45 minutes, average three out of five cent match, the, pro, the pros are playing like something like 18 or 20 minutes of the time. So 84% of the time you're playing tennis, you're not playing a point, right? So what percentage of the tennis is mental? 84%. That whole time when you're not hitting the ball, it's the mental part. So if you don't work on the mental part, and in my generation, most people didn't. You know, you were either born with mental toughness, like, you know, Monica Seles, 
Chris Ever, Steffi Graf, born with mental toughness, or you're not. I was not. So I had to learn the skills of you know, managing your emotions and um, your self-talk and what you do between points so that you could step on the court on, you know, break point, match point down, and you hit a return winner. You know, how does that happen? Well, it's all up here. It's all in the head. Obviously, Jim Lur will tailor his advice to the player concerned, but if there's one thing that you think stands out about the 84% of a match where you're not hitting the ball that he told you that made a difference, what would that be? Well, the thing that he did with me, which was brilliant in his part, he asked me if I could act. And I said, well, I don't know if I can act, but I have a great uncle who's an Academy Award winner, Jose Ferrer. So maybe I had the acting gene and I didn't know it. And he's, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to act like you're having fun. I want you to pretend and I want you to fool all the crowd watching and I want them to look at that girl playing and think that that girl's having fun. I said, okay, I'll try it. So I tried it the first match and we won 6-4 in the third. And when he came off the court, he said, did you have any fun? I'm like, oh, no. 6-4 in the third is stressful. I didn't have any fun. I said, okay, do it the next match. And I did it the next match and the next match and the next match. And now we're playing Martina and Pam, best team in the history of tennis, male or female, 21 Grand Slams. Um, they had just finished their 108-match win streak at Wimbledon, and that's three years without losing. And we were playing them in the semis, so really have you no and cha- Robin White. Yep. And we have no chance to win this match. And we're just, I'm still pretending like I'm having fun. And the song, the number one hit at the time was Don't Worry, Be Happy. And we just kept singing that song. And we beat them. We beat Martina and Pam, and we won the U.S. Open. So all, and did you have fun? Oh, yeah. I, when I walked off the court after the semifinals, played on grandstand, old grandstand, packed. And I walked off the court, and he goes, are you having fun now? I'm like, you bet I'm having fun. I'm in the finals of the U.S. Open. So that's when I thought, okay, if I can trick my brain into thinking that I'm having fun and play this kind of tennis, I have to figure this out because I obviously have potential. You know, Once you win a Grand Slam, you, you know you can win others. It's just a matter of getting there. Just go back a step in the sense that you, we talked about the – lack of tennis infrastructure in Puerto Rico. But one of the big stepping stones for you was the Pan American Games. That's not a concept to most people in in tennis or in the sporting world. Tell me about that and what it did for you. Yeah, so the Pan Am Games are basically the Olympics of the Americas, right? So all countries and all sports gather every four years, just like at the Olympics, kind of like the Asian Games. And there's also the Central American Games, Um, So the Pan American Games came to Puerto Rico in 1979. I was uh, 15 years old, and I was kind of, you know, when you turn 15, you're a teenager, and I was starting to drive, and I didn't want to play tennis anymore. And I I told my parents I was going to quit tennis. And my mom, I remember her, my parents never pushed me. They were never pushy parents they they just wanted me to be happy and do whatever I wanted to do and and I remember my mom I remember where she was standing in our house and she turned around she said you know Gigi you're very talented and you really shouldn't quit tennis why don't you just play through the Panam games and then we'll make a decision I said okay so I played the Panam games and I won a bronze medal in the doubles and I was the youngest medalist in the history of the Panam games for Puerto Rico and I was like and I think I was one of the only medalists but definitely the youngest one. So so that was like, okay. And I also beat in the round robin, in the preliminary rounds, I beat the American who won gold in singles. I beat her in the preliminary rounds, and then I lost to her uh, in the in the regular draw. But I did win a bronze medal in, in the doubles. So that kind of kept me going for a little bit longer. <laughs> Is there a pattern here emerging of you having 
at various stages said, oh, I'm not going to do this. And just at the point where you're about to quit, something just... Something happens. Very interesting. Very interesting. I never thought about it, but maybe I need to be on the brink. To... <laughs> or do you have sympathy for maybe some juniors who are touted as being very promising, but who keep having these kind of, oh, do I really want this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, listen, it's, it's, it's a hard life. People think that being a professional tennis player is glamour and it's spectacular and it's amazing, but it's not easy. It's, you know, all you see, the things, what you, what we see, the fans, what they see on TV or when they go to tournaments are the people that are being successful. You know, you see the great players on, you know, on the show courts, you don't see all the players playing challengers and Timbuktu, you know, 10,000 event with no one there. And, and you don't see all the hours and hours of grind. And, you know, and you basically, there's a lot of sacrifice involved. You know, I was traveling 40 weeks out of the year for 15 years. I missed weddings, anniversaries, celebrations, baptisms. I missed a lot of my family's, um, missed my parents. You know, I saw my parents twice a year for 15 years. And then you're 33 and then you're retired. And it's like, now what? I've been doing this one thing my whole life and now it's gone. And what am I going to do? And then you, and I, you know, quit college to play tennis and what are my options? You know, and being retired at 33 is people think it's great, but it's not because then what do you do the rest of your life? And I mean, you, you, you better have saved a lot of money if you think that you don't have to work again, right? In my generation, I don't think that was still an option. And the next generation, I think that'll change because people are making so much money. I think you, you know, if I'd had the career I had, if I was having that career now, I probably wouldn't have to work. But that's, that was not the case in my generation. So, so yeah, it's when you look at that totality of your life and you have these 10 great years and there are 10 great earning years, as opposed to, you know, if you're an executive or you're a regular job, you have 50 years of earning power. So it's not as great as sometimes as people make it to be. <laughs> but I wouldn't change it for the world. <laughs> great. Yeah. You talked a bit about Martina Rashalova, how you needed to have respect for your yeah. opponents, especially opponents who might become doubles partners. Right. Your second Grand Slam title came with her. Yeah. How did you get over the, the awe of playing with a legend and feel that you were very much I didn't and I still haven't <laughs> so how did you uh, win the uh, it was that was a struggle I mean it was it's very hard playing Martina because it's so much pressure on you because if you win it's because you know you're playing with Martina and if you lose it's your fault because you messed it up right so in her heyday you know in her height of course, she played till she was 50, so it was different towards the end because then I felt like we were more equals. But when she was the icon that she was, number one in the world, and winning matches in you know 50 minutes and killing everybody 6-1, 6-1, at that time, it was, it was a struggle playing with her. It was difficult emotionally. And how did you get over that? Did you act? <sighs> no, I didn't. I, you know, how... I'm trying to think what was happening at that time. So I learned... This is 1990, so I hadn't learned this yet. So, okay, so I remember this this era. So I had just met Julie Anthony, who became my coach and mentor, and she's a clinical psychologist as well. So we did a lot of work on the men, on the mental part of the game. So I think, yeah, I was probably, probably learned to compartmentalize at that point where you sort of put things in a box and this is over here and this is over here. So I would put the fact that she's this icon over here and not bring it on the court over here. That's probably, and that's probably what I was doing at the time. Did Martina ever 
put you at your ease or did she very much take the view, look, if I do too much putting my partner at ease, then we lose the the fact that the opponents are playing the reputation as well as the opponent. Why don't you ask her that question? <laughs> yeah, I can. I'm just interested from your perspective. Um, yeah, so Martina... Um, I mean, she wanted to win. And yeah, absolutely. she needed the best out of her partner. No, she, she'll, it's funny because she tells a story that I don't remember, but we were playing in the fourth round of the openers, the second or third round that year, and I apparently was having a really bad day. And I, I frankly do not remember the story, but she came to the, to the changeover frustrated as could be, and then she took a racket and she just smashed it to smithereens. She's like, <laughs> and I, like I said, I don't remember, but she tells a story that I just kind of looked at her and then I just, something snapped and then I started playing great right after she smashed her racket and we ended up winning that match and then winning the tournament. So isn't that interesting, right? So it's interesting that you don't remember it. I don't remember it. I probably blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> so stressful. So, yeah, no, I mean, she was, she was very encouraging. It's just that she is who she is. So regardless of what she says or does, she's still Martina. She's still this icon. So When you shop at TennisFame.com, you're supporting the International Tennis Hall of Fame's mission to preserve tennis history, celebrate its greatest champions, and inspire tennis fans around the world. The shop is stocked with the best gifts for the tennis fan in your life, from performance fila apparel, hats, tees, and more. Shop now at shoptennisfame.com. The International Tennis Hall of Fame's collection is vast, spanning over 25,000 artifacts and millions of images. However, only a fraction of it is on display in the museum in Newport, Rhode Island. But the team at the Hall of Fame has been diligently digitizing its vast collection, so no matter where in the world you are, you can explore some of tennis's greatest history. The International Tennis Hall of Fame has produced exhibits on fashion, rackets, tennis balls, cans, and more. And none of it requires you to leave the comfort of your home. You can explore the award-winning digital exhibits at tennisfame.com slash digital exhibits. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer Gigi Fernandez. Let's move on to the peak period of your doubles time, your partnership with Natasha Svereva. Yep. How did that come about? How did you end up playing with her? Oh, it's an interesting story. So Natasha and I started playing in 1992. And uh, in the 1991 Wimbledon final, I was playing with Yana Novodna and she was playing with Larissa Nealand. And Yana and I lost. Do you want the, the full story or the half story? <laughs> well, there are rumors around that um, there was sort of, let's say, diplomatic incidents <laughs> there going were, there on. There was a diplomatic incident. So we were, uh, Jan and I were down 5-4 in the third, and it was 9-20 at night. And back then, that was caught off time. So we had one more game to play, make it 5-all. Uh, if she holds her serve, it's 5-all. We come back on Sunday after the men's final, get on center court again. It was a thrill to get on center court any time. And she double faulted a match point. So I was obviously distraught. Just lost the Wimbledon final. It's my first final. And when we were putting our rackets down, she says, I need to talk to you. And I said, no, whatever you want to talk about, can wait. She's like, no, no, we got to talk. So right after we got our trophies, she told me that she didn't want to play with me anymore. And I was in shock because we just won the French Open three weeks before and it was finals of Wimbledon. And unbeknownst to Natasha and I, Yana and Larissa had already agreed to play together the rest of the year. So... When that final ended, the two of them started playing together. And then it took Natasha and I a while. Um, Natasha played with Pam Shriver at the following U.S. Open, and, and they won that U.S. Open. And then Natasha and I got together the following April. So in April, our coaches, we were at the Light and Lively Tournament in Tampa, Florida. 
and our coaches talked and then they brought us together and they just said we guys think that you should play doubles together so it wasn't like you and she comforting each other as two jilted doubles players no it, it wasn't but it was because we we had such a chip on our shoulders about that that every time we i mean it was you can imagine the, the energy of of the matches like the following the following year 1992 women this the four of us were same four players were on the court but we all had our different partners and uh we were we were down four one two breaks they were serving 30 15 and then it rained and i we came off the court and i was playing terrible and i asked i had a different mental coach at this time herb hampshire was his name and i asked to see him and he comes up to me and he goes gee you need to detach from the outcome and I looked at him, I'm like, do you know how much this match means? It's not only the women in the finals, but the dumpies are playing the dumpers. So I really want to win this match. So he, he actually was the first person to, to teach me uh, or tell me this very important, valuable life lesson of detaching from the outcome. If you can, in whatever you do in life, detach from the end result, not have no emotion around it, you, you will perform better. It sounds maybe easy or hard it's not easy to do but once you get the swing of it it was what made i feel the one phrase that made my career so great because i was able to detach from the outcome whenever it was an important situation and yet there must have been something about the fact that you and natasha felt in some way victims of having been dumped, yeah, dumpies, absolutely. that really added some spice to the effectiveness of your doubles combination. 100%. And, you know, we won, we played, when Natasha and I got together in 92 French Open, and we won six Grand Slams in a row, and five out of those finals were against that team. So we we had that extra bit of whatever you want to call it. We were the dump, dumped team, and we were angry, and we were we had something to prove, you know, so... And did that manifest itself in any other ways? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what, I don't know what can you say podcast. <laughs> no, it was really ugly in the locker room, I have to say. It was it was a period of time that um, was difficult in the locker room. And Hannah Manlikova was um, Jana's coach. And she was part of it, too. And we have since. We're now all friends. You know, after we retired, um, I remember playing in a senior event at, in Cincinnati. And my phone rings, and it's Hannah. And for 20 years, she would had nothing nice to say about me. I wouldn't say hello. And she calls me and I'm like, Hannah, what are you, what are you doing? She goes, can, can we have breakfast? I'm like, sure, we'll, we'll have breakfast. So we had breakfast and, and she apologized. So I really respected that she, she saw that it was a little bit inappropriate how it had all transpired. And, and then we all, of course, were, once you retire, we're all friends. I'm friends with every, every player that I hated when I was playing. And yet there was something almost of a golden era of women's doubles around that time. Yeah. I don't know whether it was the combination of the, the, the first, second generation of the composite rackets that allowed you to hit the ball harder or, or maybe made men's doubles a little less interesting because it became so powerful. But there were lots of pairs. It wasn't just you and Natasha yeah. and um, Jana and Larissa. There were Meredith McGrath. McGrath uh, and Fendig yeah. and Fernandez and Garrison and, and there was some really Kilsch and Sokova. Great matches at that time. Yeah. It was still doubles how doubles has had been played for not how it's played now, but it was what I call traditional doubles still. You know, you gotta get to the net in doubles and you know, unfortunately the 
recreational player or kind of weekend competitive warrior watching tennis on TV thinks that that's how you should play doubles. And it's not. It's not unless you have those ground strokes, right? It, if you hit the ball 120 miles an hour, then you're fine staying in the baseline because you can overpower the people at the net. But if you're still playing recreational tennis, you have to get to the net to win points. You're not, you don't win points from the baseline. And an interesting stat is even though the ground strokers are you know, obviously have the best ground strokers in the world, the stats show that a baseliner playing doubles only hits a winner three out of 100 times. 3% winners from the baseline. So so it's it's 37% the net player winning the point and 60% an error. So they're not hitting winners, right? They're throwing errors or, or setting up their partner. So for anybody listening who plays doubles, you've you got to get to the net. You don't play how the pros play. <laughs> Were you the first ones to do high fives after every point? It became very much a feature of your partnership. Really? I didn't know that either. <laughs> Were others doing it before you? I don't know. I, I never, I don't recall that. It seemed to emphasize you as a real unit as yeah. opposed to two players playing on the same court. Yeah, no, we, the communication between two players or two doubles partners in a team is 95% of it, right? If you are not in sync with your partner, you almost have to have one brain, you know, when you're if you want to be really good at doubles, like you have to think the same way when a point starts. You have to have the same mentality about shot selection and you have to understand how to construct a point the same way because there're obviously a lot of different ways to win a point, but if you think differently, you're going to have conflict. So I think we thought the same about how, what's the right shot. Like I always knew what shot she was going to hit. I never had to turn and watch because I, I just knew what was coming. And How and long did it take to get to that stage? It, it would happen right away. I mean, we won the first six Grand Slams that we played. That's a lot. <laughs> That's you know, six Grand Slams in a row. Like people win two Grand Slams in a row now and it's a big deal. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just uncanny and what's also interesting about it is the timing of it was also interesting because we started playing in uh, 92 but the wall had just come down in 89 right so before the wall came down and even into 90 and even a little bit into 91 the, the Russians were only allowed to play with each other like Yana was playing with Larissa because that was her only option and I think it was 90 when well, the Natasha... Soviets weren't they yeah because Larissa was, yeah. is from Latvia yep they were all USSR and when Natasha made her announcement at the Family Circle Cup that she wanted to keep her price money, you remember that? She was yes. playing in the finals of the Family Circle Cup and NBC, national TV in the United States. And she said, I want to keep my price money. And we thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to go to Siberia and we're never going to see her again. So it was still really the the, east, the, the curtain was up. So when the when that happened, you know, if we if we had come three years earlier, we could not have been a team. So you have Russian and an American playing doubles in a time in a political kind of sensitive political time in our in our history. You are clearly the second best women's doubles team in the history of tennis after Navratilova and Shriver. And yet you never did a calendar Grand Slam. You came so close <sighs> twice. So close. And I do remember one press conference afterwards where you were not the charming person you normally are. Really? What did I do? Oh, God. <laughs> Tell me, well, You were just deeply disappointed. Yeah, well, we had dismal losses in the, both U.S. Opens. So the first one, we were going to win our seventh in a row because we had won you know, six leading up to it. And we played, we were scheduled fourth match on Super Saturday after the 
two men's semis in the men's final. And I was like, why are we in this slot? Like we had been playing at normal times throughout, throughout the, the, um, the whole tournament and packed stadiums, right? People love the story of a grand slam. Every, every match we played was packed wherever they put us, it was packed. So now we're playing fourth on center after the, after super Saturday, it was no one there, you know, 10 39 when we went on. So we didn't win the grand slam. And then, Next year we did it again. We won the Australia French Women League after this, and I thought that year would be different, but it wasn't. We still, we still uh, lost in the semifinals, and it was you know interesting when um, Serena was going for the Grand Slam in 2015, I believe. I was checking in at the U.S. Open, getting my credentials, and I the Bryan brothers were checking in at the same time, and they had tried to win the Grand Slam as well. And this is the whole entire world thought Serena was going to win the Grand Slam because she was so dominant. And I, when I saw Mike and Bob, I was like, hey, do you think she's going to win the Grand Slam? And they said no. And I and I didn't think she was going to do it either. I think we were the only three people in the world that didn't think Serena was going to win the Grand Slam because we had tried to do I tried to do it twice. They tried to do it once. You can't describe the pressure. It's so much pressure trying to win a calendar Grand Slam because it's so rare. It's so rare and unique. And I think don't think Steffi Graf gets enough credit you know, for at least being in the conversation about the greatest of all time. Because she's not in the conversation. We all think Serena's the GOAT and Serena's amazing. But Steffi won the calendar Grand Slam and the gold medal and um, 18 Grand Slams. So she at least should be in the conversation. Because of your achievements in doubles, we tend to overlook the fact that you were a very accomplished singles player. Um, Does that bother you or are you just so pleased with your doubles achievements that you're quite happy if singles is left out of? Um... How do I answer that? I, you know, I, I think when you're number one in the world at something, you don't think that 17 is good, right? So, I, I mean, I had an okay singles career by the standard of my doubles career, but it, it was a pretty good singles career. I'm most proud of my semifinal appearance at Wimbledon in 1994. Um, I think I had – I was one volley away from – maybe winning Wimbledon in singles and that's my one regret the one shot I regret in in my life is that you know I was um I had a set point in the second set against Martina who was 38 at the time and I served out wide and had for him open court forehand volley cross court to win the set and I saw her start to run to cover that so I decided to change it and go behind her and the ball hit the tape and then went up hit the tape again and landed on my side so if that if I had won that point, I feel pretty good about how I was playing. I started nervous. I lost the first four games, but I was, you know, playing really well. I was playing better from 4-0 down. I was playing better, so I think I probably would have won the third set to play Conchita Martinez in the finals. My my good friend Conchita, so it would have been interesting. So that's my one shot that I wish I could have back still twenty or thirty years later. But when you say, well, seventeen, yeah, when you've been number one in doubles, seventeen doesn't feel that good. Can you ever compare it to the little girl that was told by Welby, no, I don't want to coach you. <laughs> and that if you could have yeah. said, listen, I'm going to be top 20 in singles. Yeah. It's that would have been a good answer. Yeah. No, it was, it was a good answer. Yeah. And, and I had a, I mean, I had a good career. It was just hard. Um, I didn't have the base, the ground stroke base growing up because I didn't hit a thousand forehands and a thousand backhands every day of my life. I didn't start doing that until I went to college. When I when I went to college, I had a slice forehand and a slice backhand. 
because the other thing was like the the coaches in Puerto Rico would not teach me topspin because girls were not strong enough to hit topspin. So I had slice forehand and slice backhand. When the and this is when the game was already changing to topspin. We already had Borg was already around. He was the first one to have a two-handed topspin backhand um, that perhaps kept my singles career from really flourishing as it maybe perhaps could have. We haven't really talked much about the Olympics, and yet mm. you got gold in Barcelona and Atlanta. What did that mean to you? The medals are probably the highlight of my career, or undoubtedly the hi- highlight of my career. It just comes with a lot of heartache and a little bit of pain because I represented uh, United States in the Olympics. I'm Puerto Rican. I represented Puerto Rico in the '84 LA Games as a it was an exhibition sport, and. When 92 came around, I had to pick between playing for the U.S. and playing for Puerto Rico. And fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know if, if it was a good thing or a bad thing, there was not another Puerto Rican that I could play doubles with. So I could not play doubles. I could only play singles. So I chose to represent the United States so I could play with Mary Jo Fernandez and hopefully try to win a gold medal. To this day, I have not um, been able to convince... Puerto Ricans that that was my only choice they they there's 50% of the island that thinks I'm a traitor and um, thinks I sold myself and I um, you know should have represented Puerto Rico and not had a chance at the gold medal so it's still to this day I, I have mi- very mixed emotions about it on the one hand on the other hand I have two Olympic gold medals so you know if I know that if I had played for Puerto Rico I would have not won any medals so I don't know. It's conflicted. You've mentioned once or twice that you've received a bit of criticism on social media, which mm-hmm. slightly upsets you. Yeah. Is that based on the Olympics? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And especially after Monica Puig won the gold medal, because then they all thought, well, if Monica could do it, why couldn't you? But I was not a singles player. <laughs> I was a doubles player. You mentioned that you didn't grow up playing with lots of forehands and backhands mm-hmm. the way the kids do these days at the tennis academies. Yeah. Did that perhaps make you a better player, certainly as a doubles player? Um, no, I just didn't play, period. Whether forehand, backhands, volleys, I mean, I, hit, I would hit twice a week. I would play tennis twice a week all throughout my... But the point I'm making is that if you are hitting hundreds of forehands and hundreds of backhands... Maybe you would have relied more on that on the, and developed your all court game less. I don't know because when I maybe we'll we'll never know. But when I, I know that when I was playing, I, w- I was always wanting to be at the net, and I was good at doubles from really from when I was you know I was born understanding doubles for some reason. Like I was uh, when I was twelve, I made the finals of the Puerto Rico National Championship in the adult division. So I always got the geometry of doubles court and what was you know where to stand what shot to anticipate that was always natural for me i never had to work at that so um so i don't know we'll never know the international tennis hall of fame you were inducted in 2010 in a in a big doubles year was mm-hmm. almost a who's who of your generation of doubles right. were inducted that year what did that mean to you you know it's funny because you don't we don't play tennis thinking that you're going to go in the hall of fame like i don't think I've never heard an athlete say of any sport, I'm trying to get in the Hall of Fame. I'm working hard so I can get in the Hall of Fame. Like, it's just something so hard to achieve. Like, you, don't, you never think it's going to happen to you. So it was, it was very special. And it was special. My whole family was there. I had, to this day, I have the largest party at the 
meaning group of people that had 45 people there with me at the at the celebration so my kid i had my kids already so that was that was really special and since being inducted you've become more involved with the hall of fame and yeah. you now have mm-hmm. a senior position what has the hall of fame meant to you in terms of the chance to put something back well i i've always felt the responsibility to give back to tennis and in fact when i retired at in my retirement speech, that, that's what I said. I wanted to give back and um, help others. I feel like I have, have not done enough, and I'm, but I still have time. I'm still working on it. But I give back wherever I can. You know, I, I'm a, the vice chairman of the board of the Hall of Fame. I've been with the Hall of Fame four years now. I was, I was on the USDA board for four years as well. And I give back to the tennis community with my, with my business now. I have a tennis business um, where I give tennis fans the opportunity to come play with me and learn from me and and I also bring people to events you know and I, and probably the biggest joy that I have throughout the year is bringing people to Wimbledon you know I I bring people to Wimbledon either every year or every other year and the joy on the faces of the people that come to Wimbledon when they first walk into the grounds and you know these are bucket list items and you know and you give people the opportunity to do that and and you know last year I, I was one person in our group who had just recovered from from cancer did not have a ticket for the Nadal match and I was able to get her a Nadal match and you know three months before she was diagnosed with breast cancer thinking she wasn't going to be around and now she's watching Nadal play center court Wimbledon so so those are the things that make me um, make me happy and make me keep going and. What is the biggest piece of advice you give to youngsters or perhaps youngsters' parents? To the youngsters' parents, I say it's their life and their passion and they're the ones that have to put in the hours and you can't do it for them. You know, and I am a mom of a youth of a 13-year-old soccer, very accomplished soccer player, so I understand the parent perspective. Um, And to the athlete, I say... Do it because you love it. Gigi Fernandez, thank you for sharing your thoughts about your career. Thank you. Gigi, thanks so much for being with us today. Your story is sure to inspire countless listeners. If you enjoyed Gigi's insights, give our other tennis-worthy podcasts a listen, featuring conversations with the likes of Stan Smith, Mary Pierce, and many others. Also, be sure to subscribe so you're among the first to know when a new episode drops. The Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. I'm Brett Haber. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.